week 89 of the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Checkmate. Let's start the show. We are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. You and I as citizens have the obligation to shape the debates of our time, not only with the votes we cast, but with the voices we lift. The people are looking for honest answers, not easy answers. The very word secrecy is repugnant. Clear leadership. And we are as a people. Not false claims and evasiveness and politics as usual. Opposed to secret society. But ours was a nation of the battle, not the bullet. And a secret procedure. As a people, we cannot afford to let any group of citizens or any individual citizens live or labor under conditions which are injurious to the commonwealth. Black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, young, old, gay, straight, men, women, folks with disabilities, all pledging allegiance under the same proud flag to this big, bold country that we love. That's what I see. That's the America I know. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. Uh, Have you felt it this week? Have you felt the power just slipping away from Donald Trump? I mean, he threw that temper tantrum over the COVID stimulus package, which was attached to the budget. A budget, by the way, which was largely what he proposed. All of his complaints were of things that he put in his own budget. What a jerk. But the power is slipping away. He got a lot of pushback, including from the New York Post of all places, and uh, eventually signed the COVID-19 bill. Oh, yay, he signed the bill. I I I give him no praise for that. It's like praising the arsonist who happens to put the fire out that he started. Not going to happen this time. Not buying it. And you know what? For the most part, I didn't feel like that there was any of that going on, at least in the mainstream media. Um, I'm sure that some conservative outlets were praising Donald Trump for doing what he's supposed to do. Chris Rock had that joke about women saying that they take care of their kids. Well, yeah, you're supposed to take care of your kids, right? The president is supposed to sign a bill that his treasury secretary negotiated that largely contains items from his own budget, right? You know, let's not confuse the COVID relief package with the budget. They wanted to connect them because the budget had to pass or there would have been a government shutdown this week. And the budget that was passed was the president's own budget. But I'm calling this show Checkmate. Why? Because the Democrats on Monday in the House of Representatives passed $2,000 stimulus checks, something that the president said he wanted. That's going to now go over to the Senate, which I don't believe will pass it now. You know, maybe you're listening to this on Thursday or Friday of this week, New Year's Day. Happy New Year. Um, Then, uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope they pass it. Um, either way, it's checkmate, right? Why? Because the Democrats now have given that $2,000 check or, or voted for that $2,000 check, something that they voted for back in April, by the way. they want, I think it might have been a little less than $2,000. Um, the Republicans now are going to have to change their mind and vote for it, or Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue are in some deep trouble. I think they're in deep trouble anyway. Uh, as of Monday, over 2.1 million people voted in that election in Georgia, which is a lot of people for Georgia. Uh, a lot of people for a runoff. I think it's already broken runoff records. 
Early voting continues until Friday, January 1st. If you're in Georgia, if you know anybody who's in Georgia, tell them to vote early. And then Election Day itself is Tuesday, January 6th. Sorry, Tuesday, January 5th. And then on Wednesday, January 6th, the votes of the Electoral College will be counted. And the president is planning something to disrupt that. But I don't think it's going to do anything other than keep the Senate and House in session for, you know, maybe eight hours longer than they need it to be um, because he doesn't have the votes. His own party isn't voting for it. When you have the conservative New York Post saying, stand down, you lost the election uh, on their cover on Monday. I think it's time to move on, Mr. President. I think it's time to, you know, I I think your your time is running out. I don't don't know what he's got planned for Monday. I don't know what kind of anarchy he's going to try to pull. I don't know how many more matches he's going to throw onto the fire that's already burning in this country because of his failure to acknowledge reality and so many other people living in the same reality or false reality that he has created for them. But it's over. Uh, You know, we've spent, you know, five days since the Congress passed this COVID relief package, along with the federal budget, where millions of Americans who are unemployed due to no fault of their own, due to COVID-19 and really the failure of government uh, post-COVID-19 to both slow the spread and provide uh, sustenance for these businesses, particularly restaurants and other service industries that are going under during this time. The government, you know, has not acted since April. Um, but these people were forced to spend Christmas wondering if they would have the benefits that they needed, wondering if they would get evicted in some states, right? The federal eviction moratorium was extended till January 31st in New York state. I think it's till April 1st. Um, uh, you know, there were millions of Americans who have not worked, uh, in many months due to COVID-19 or, or underemployed due to COVID-19 who are wondering how they're going to make ends meet. And they had to spend their holiday. Worried about that. Thanks, Mr. President. While you golfed and while your vice president skied in Vail. So, um, you know, this is your picture, America. I mean, not that I need to to rail against Donald Trump uh, in an electoral fashion anymore. I think it's, you know, I mean, the election's over and I don't think he's ever coming back. But it's very clear to me that if you open up your eyes, you got the president golfing at, at the golf resort that he owns uh, in Florida. A golf course that, you know, most of his supporters would, uh, most, 99.9% of his supporters would not be welcome at. And uh, the vice president at Vail, Colorado, um, and they're calling me an elitist. I was home on Long Island during the holidays, as I have been since this started, with the exception of my trips into the city to do radio once a week. So I I am, uh, you know, beside myself that there are anybody in this country that isn't looking at that saying, okay, enough with these two nonsense, these, these two, uh, these two people who do not share our experience, let alone our values. And, And I'm not just talking about my experience. They do not share the American experience. People are struggling. People are worried in this country. And this man was playing games, playing games with the stimulus that they needed and playing games with not just the people who were unemployed, who were waiting for COVID-19 relief, but millions of federal workers who would have lost their job had he not signed that bill. Millions of federal workers would have lost their jobs this week if the president hadn't signed that bill. And that's how they got to spend their holiday. 
Happy holiday. Happy Merry Christmas, Mr. President. Stay down there at Mar-a-Lago. Don't come back. Nobody's missing you. Nobody at all. And he says he'll be back in Washington on January 6th. Yay. Yay. Stick around. I hope they have to drag you out of the White House. Um, it is, it is, uh, it, it's time for us to just move on. But I, I feel the power draining from him. I'm sure you do too. I feel it. And I, I, I feel the errors of judgment starting to catch up on other Republicans, particularly those two, you know, ridiculous human beings running for United States Senate re-election to United States Senate, uh, in Georgia. I guess one of them is re-election, one of them for her first term because she was appointed. I think it's going to catch up to them. I, I don't know. I Look, somebody asked me about this the other day, and they asked me to break it down for them, and I did. Democrats do not have a strong track record of winning these uh, runoff elections in Georgia over the last 15 years. They've, they've lost them all, I believe. And, um, you know, that's the history here. Democrats have been making up ground year over year in Georgia uh, for the last six years or so, culminating in Joe Biden winning the election. Very short, very small, 10,000, 12,000 votes in Georgia. Um, but of course, Purdue did get close to 50% over Ossoff. Warwick did a lot better than Kelly Loeffler, but there were multiple Republicans in the race and really only two viable Democrats. So the history of this is that Republicans should win. Right. It's Georgia. Democrats have made significant gains in Georgia, but it's still Georgia. It's still a runoff. It's still January. Now you look at what's happened so far. There are two point one million plus votes already in that has got to benefit Democrats. That's a large number of votes for a runoff election, even at this point. And there's still four more days as I tape this of, of early voting and then the actual election day, which is on January one. So a lot more people can vote between now and then. You might wind up with 3 million people voting in this runoff election, which would be completely unprecedented, would break every record, uh, would be amazing. Turnout, I would think, still favors the Democrats if there's a large turnout. Yes. The other issue you got to say here is you, you've got people like Lynn Wood, who's a crazy Trump ret- uh, attorney, uh, working with uh, Sidney the Kraken Powell, who's a maniac. Um encouraging people to boycott this election, Trump supporters to boycott this election. Now, when when Joe Biden won by, I don't know, four tenths of one percent and you're looking at turnout as the reason, you know, how are you going to win? You got to get your people out in these special elections. Let's say one or two percent of Republican voters who voted in the general election decide that they're not going to vote in this special election for one reason or another. Well, uh, that becomes a big problem for these two people, Um, a really big problem. If the Democrats get their turnout up a little bit, maybe I don't know how you do it because they did so well in the general, but you get some of these new voters to come out and vote. Forty nine percent of the people who registered to vote since Election Day registered Democrat. Republicans got 40 percent of those. And then, you know, there were about 10 percent that were unaffiliated. So there is a you know, there's a big uh, you know, there's, there's a big push to get those people out. Uh, what we've seen is they are coming out, those new voters. So, you know, you figure that's going to go 50, 40 for the Democrats. That's good. There's not a lot of them. Uh, I know this is boring, right? This is not my normal, my normal game plan. I was told, you know, you got to mix it up a little bit, right? Uh, not on this 
podcast, but on my TV appearances. It's, there's a lot going on in America. Hopefully, one of these days, I'll have a real gig. Uh, <laughs> but not right now. Uh, on television, that is. Um, it's a, you know, there there are ways for the Democrats to win. And there, uh, the Republicans seem to be making it harder for themselves. And the fact that now Purdue and Loeffler need to go and push Mitch McConnell to get $2,000 checks... That's a problem because they're not going to, I don't think they're going to get it done. They might. I mean, Mitch McConnell cares about one thing and one thing only, power, to quote James Carville. You can't do anything unless you got the power. And it's it's a, uh, he cares about that. And I don't know. I, I think not having those $2,000 checks becomes a problem for them on the margin because there are some people. Remember, Joe Biden won by four-tenths of 1%. Uh, if the same turnout happens and people vote the same way they did for president in that election, he's going to win. Uh, you know, the Democrats are going to win by four tenths of one percent. So any one percent change is a huge change in this election, assuming everybody votes the same way they did in the general election for president. That is assuming that. So if you can assume that and the Democrats collectively did not get over 50 percent of the vote in the Senate runoff. So they have to make up ground. But if you lose one or two percent of Republican turnout, whether it's because of the checks, because of people like Lynn Wood and Sid, uh, and Sidney Powell, well, you know this could go very easily for uh, Ossoff and work. And, I, and I'm hoping it does because that makes my boss Chuck Schumer, my former boss, the majority leader of the United States Senate, uh, and I would love that, uh, having worked for him in his first term, um, and know known then, you know what a great legislator he is, and uh, and the good things he'll do. So. You know, let's see what happens down there. Let's see what happens. I think it's checkmate. I think it's a big problem for them. And um, I am cautiously optimistic. I don't want to say that I think that it's a definite win for the D's down there, but I'm cautiously cautiously optimistic. They've been working hard. They've raised a lot of money. This is a huge, you know, money campaign. Uh, make no mistake, um, both parties are pouring everything they have into it, bringing out their big guns, uh, Biden was down there. Trump's going down there on the fifth or the fourth, I should say. Um, you know, I, I don't know that that's a good thing for him. Uh, maybe it is because you got a lot of people who might not vote, but for Trump telling them to vote. But there are some people out there who, you know, <laughs> won't have that. To, you know, if you don't vote early, sometimes you don't vote. A lot of people voting early. The Republicans down there are encouraging people to vote early too. Uh, I am, I'm on pins and needles about it, as you could possibly tell. So I hope you all had a good holiday. I know I did. I stayed home, didn't do anything. It was just me and my wife and my daughters and my dog. My dog came home. My daughter is a reporter. Um, and, uh, I've been spending some time with the dog and that's been good. Uh, FaceTime with the rest of the family. Enjoyed that. Ran 42 miles last week. Still gained a pound because didn't really diet this week. Uh, that shows, that goes to show you when you're, when you reach a certain age, doesn't matter how much you exercise, you got to diet, right? You got to watch what you eat. And uh, I bought an apple pie uh, and some cannoli uh, and some chocolate peppermint bark for the house for the holidays from a bakery nearby. Uh, so I'll say it, Rolling Pin Bakery, fantastic bakery on Long Island. Um, and um, yeah, I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to enjoy myself for two weeks, you know, and after the new year, I'll lose that one pound. I'm still running, running streaks almost at two years now. Uh, and, and it ran 42 miles. I mean, I ran 10 miles the day after Christmas because we ate like kings on Christmas. Uh, my wife and 
I and my daughter decided that uh, we're not going to do the traditional Christmas dinner. We're going to just make steak. And we made some steaks and I took my shot at some au gratin potatoes, which I, the recipe called for quarter inch slices. I think that uh, next time I do it, I'm going to do it uh, thinner. I think that's probably the way to go with au gratin potatoes. I think they were too thick. They came out good. Um, next time I'm going to mix it up. Uh, I think I'll do it again. <laughs> they came They came out well last week. I don't know if I said this on this podcast. I tried my hand at uh, latkes. Uh, potato pancakes for the uh, uninitiated, and they came out really good. Um, I got one of these slicers a couple of years ago. My my father in law brought me one of those slicers you see like on TV. Slices it dices. Uh, it it really works well, <laughs> and I use it all the time. Uh, and I used it to shred the potatoes for the latkes. I used it to slice the potatoes and the onions for the uh, for the au gratin potatoes. Next time I'm going to do nice thin slices. But yeah, even running 10 miles couldn't help me. 10 miles in one day, 42 miles in a week, uh, couldn't couldn't stop me from gaining a pound. Uh, so <laughs> I was uh, to be honest with you, I had lost that pound the week before Christmas. So it was a it was a it was a it was a dubious pound to begin with. So uh, we'll, we'll worry about that, you know, on January January first, uh, like we always do, and when we get strict with our diet. I hope you all. Having a great holiday, however you celebrate, um, you know, I, I hope you had a great holiday like I did. Uh, I'm gonna do part two of my Biden cabinet spotlight today. Uh, Ron Klain was a guest on my show back in June, uh, guest on this podcast. He is going to be the um, chief of staff to Joe Biden in the White House, and uh, he is a great guy and an even better guest. So uh, I'm going to take a quick break, uh, and then I'm going to come back with Ron Klain, and then uh, stick around. I'll wrap up the show after that. Joining me right now is Ron Klein. He is a former chief of staff to Vice President Joe Biden and now a senior advisor on the Joe Biden campaign. He was also President Obama's, uh, I, I guess we call you the Ebola czar, back when Ebola was ravaging Africa. And you did a great job, uh, Ron, in keeping that virus in Africa, something that this president was unable to do with the virus that ravaged this country. Well, thanks, Christopher. Thanks for having me. Uh, So, you know, look, I think President Obama launched a whole-of-government response to Ebola that was different than what President Trump did about COVID in three respects. I mean, first, he said we're going to let science and medicine develop the strategy. We're going to listen to the experts. My job as the response coordinator was to take that expert direction and turn it into reality in our government. That was the first big difference from what Trump's doing. Secondly, uh, we put every tool of the federal government at disposal fighting this disease. We didn't hold anything back. We didn't say, oh, this is up to the states to do on their own. Everyone's on their own. Every hospital's on their own. We had strong federal leadership from the president in terms of putting people on the ground in West Africa to fight it, getting test kits to hospitals here in the U.S., getting equipment to hospitals here in the U.S., getting hospitals ready for the Ebola cases we did have here in the U.S., and we really went all all in on that. And then finally, we put politics aside. We worked with Democratic and Republican governors. We weren't in feuds or pissing matches with people based on their criticism of the administration. President Obama worked very closely with Governor Rick Perry, yep. governor of Texas, who would run against him for president, yep. uh, and still worked very amiably with him. So 
I think there were a lot of differences back then, uh, and obviously they had uh, you know very big impact on the response to it. So what I mean, look, it, it appears to me that the Trump administration did everything you could do wrong uh, when it comes to this virus. They were they they first of all they denied it exists. They had no planning. You left them, the Obama administration left them a pandemic playbook. And everybody likes to point out, you know, the, the people on the right try to point out, well, they couldn't have planned for this. But you so brilliantly tweeted out page nine of that pla- uh, that that handbook, page nine. They didn't even have to read the whole thing. They didn't get to page nine that had coronavirus right in it. Yeah. So, you know, we left behind uh, a lot of things that the Trump administration should have used but chose not to. President Obama created, at my recommendation, a pandemic preparedness office in the National Security Council. Right. So we'd be ready for the next one. Donald Trump abolished that office in 2018. President Obama set up something called the PREDICT program, which had 49 offices around the world, including one in this part of China, to spot early emerging infectious diseases. President Trump shut down 39 of those 49 offices including the key office in China. Yeah. And we did leave behind that pandemic playbook. You mentioned this, a 69-page playbook that said, here's what you do as a pandemic threat emerges. The Trump administration pushed it aside. So the idea that no one could have seen this coming is wrong. Right. The idea that we had done nothing to get them ready is wrong. And as you said, the Trump administration instead practiced delay and denial, and there are thousands and thousands of unnecessary deaths as a result. And it's climbing, and I think that given the fact that a lot of these states have started opening up before they even hit their peak, I, I think you would agree that there is a danger that, forget about a second wave, this first wave really hasn't even ended. I know uh, I'm starting to see charts that show the U.S. Uh, seven-day rolling average of deaths starting to climb. Yeah, so uh, as you said, it's not really even about the second wave yet. We're still very much in the first wave. The number of cases in the country overall is basically holding even up in some places, down in other places. But, I mean, a 1,000 people will die from COVID today, today alone. Yeah. And while that's certainly down from 2,000, which was the peak, uh, a 1,000 deaths today just should be an unacceptable death yeah. toll. That's, you know, basically two 9-11s every single week, week yeah. after week. Yeah. And to kind of say, well, I guess that's just the way it's going to be, to throw up your hands, give up on it, that's not who we are as a country. That's not what we should be doing. Now, if you had a magic wand and you could, you know, convince Trump to do one basic thing to slow the spread of this, what would it be? So, you know, I'm going to push back on that because I think the biggest problem with the Trump response has been a belief that one thing would solve it. Mm. For a while, it was travel restrictions. That was the one magic thing. Then the one magic thing was hydroxychloroquine. Yep. Then the one magic thing was a UV light in your body, and now they're hoping for a quick vaccine. The problem with pandemics is they require a thousand things, Mm. all done well, to fight them. And you need a leader like President Obama or like Joe Biden who will sit down and will work on all those things. In this case, it's a combination of testing and contact tracing and protective gear and rigorous standards around reopening. We should reopen. We should reopen the right way with safety for our workers and for consumers, that will not only reduce the number of cases, but also it will make people more willing to shop and go to restaurants if they know the right. right things are being done. Right now, people have no confidence. Trump's just saying, reopen, reopen, reopen. But people have no confidence that None. they're going to be safe when they shop. They're going to be safe when they go to a store or a restaurant. And so 
places are reopening and they're finding too few customers because Trump hasn't done the right thing. It's making so matters worse. It's making matters worse. And so, as you said, cases, we just had a, an all-time peak yesterday in cases in Florida. Cases are up in Georgia. Um, you know, this is, this, is, this is getting worse, not better in many parts of the country. And it remains very bad in other parts of the country. And so it, it really requires a comprehensive, complex strategy. That's why there's a 69-page pandemic playbook, not a three-by-five card. Right. And the, and, the, and, the, and the problem with Trump is he's a three-by-five card kind of president. Yeah, three by five cards might even be too much for him. He's just, he doesn't, he's like a fortune cookie president. He, You're right. That was an excellent pushback, by the way, which is why I wanted you, I've been asking you to come on this show for a while because you clearly are a brilliant guy who's lived through this. And rather than have the president's son-in-law running the response, I would really like it to be you right now. I mean, that's the magic wand I would spread. I mean, I appreciate that. Um, so, you know, obviously the country is focused on these protests. They're erupting all over the country. You are a senior advisor to Joe Biden, who I think has been handling this very well, has had a lot of uh, excellent conversations. I watched his town hall with the mayors earlier in the week. I was very disappointed in all of these broadcasters that have been gnashing their teeth about how Joe Biden needs to get out there more, not covering that very significant event he did uh, on Monday with the mayors of uh, Chicago and Atlanta and uh, a few others. Um, How is the Biden campaign prepared to, to talk to Americans about how we get this country back on track after this virus. Well, you know, it is a, it's a great point, Christopher. I don't want to media bash here, but it is ironic to me that I read every day that Joe Biden needs to be out in public more, and then he goes out in public and the media doesn't cover it. Right. In fact, ironically, at the very moment, Joe Biden was having a listening session in a church, an African-American church, in Wilmington with a bunch of African-American religious leaders and lay leaders, all kinds of people listening to them talk about the problems our country faces, CNN, instead of carrying that listening session, held a debate among pundits over whether or not Trump should have a listening session. So, you know, the vice president is out there addressing these issues. He is out there talking about these issues, and I wish it got more visibility. I thought his speech in Philadelphia got a lot of coverage, got a lot of live air. People heard not just what he thinks or believes, but about some of the specific actions he's proposing for Congress to take right now to address uh, police abuses, to ban chokeholds, for example, nationally, uh, things he wants Congress to act on even before he becomes president. You led the recount uh, for Al Gore back in 2000. And I remember in 2000, uh, a group led by an operative for President Bush, uh, a guy named uh, Brad Blakeman, who I know from Fox News, uh, led a revolt uh, outside of a, a, an election headquarters in Florida. And I am concerned that with the increase in vote by mail in states like Texas and in uh, North Carolina, Florida, especially among people over the age of 65, the election results might not be finished on Election Day. And it's going to look pretty clear that this guy's lost. Are you concerned that... Uh, Trump is going to be leading his 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 followers to go out to those polling places and start a ruckus. And what should election commissioners be doing to protect against that? Well, I think it's a valid concern, Chris, but I'd say two things about it. I mean, first of all, the Biden campaign in conjunction with state Democratic parties and other groups has put together a really very strong campaign to protect the right to vote, to to protect voters to protect 
or tabulation of votes. We are going to be ready to deal with whatever Trump throws at us. That's the first thing. But the second thing I'd say is this. People ask me all the time, what's the number one lesson you learned from the 2000 recount? We filed 35 different, or filed or defended 35 different pieces of litigation in 38 days. We went to the Supreme Court twice. Right. We, you know, just all, all kinds of lawyering, all kinds of things. And the thing I learned from that is that the only way to avoid that kind of mess is to win decisively. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why we didn't face this kind of problem in 2008. In 2012, we didn't face it because Barack Obama and his campaign won by enough that all the Republican chicanery and efforts to do these things were unavailing. Right. And so the best way to make sure we don't face these problems is to win strongly in November, is to get all those votes in, to get everyone to vote by mail if you can, to early vote where you can. To just make sure we have our votes banked on before Election Day, where, where voters have made their will known, that will is clear and convincing. And that's what we're seeing, Chris. We're starting to see a coalescing of Americans, progressives, more moderate voters, too, some ex-Republicans, some current Republicans, yeah. saying enough is enough. It's time to get rid of this Trump era. Time to move on. And Joe Biden offers a strong progressive alternative. So I think, you know, I think. We're ready for whatever Trump has to deal with, but the best insulation against that kind of problems around the election is to win by a good, solid margin. I believe that the only way Trump can win is if he steals or if Democrats get complacent. I think that there's no way to look at what's going on in this country right now and say, yeah, let's get four more years of that. I, I just don't I don't see that path for him. I do see them trying to steal the election because, you know, look. He's already used the military against peaceful protesters in this country. The next step in the you know, ladder towards you know, totalitarianism here is for a tyrant to fix an election, which, you know, we're, you know, here we are. We have an election. Now, it's harder to fix an election in this country than some other countries because there's technically 50 separate elections, maybe even 3,400 separate elections because some of them, most of them are run on the county level. Um, so, I mean, that's my main concern. I, I'm sure you share it. I, I, look, I, what I will say again is to, is a couple things about that. First of all, uh, it is a valid concern, and particularly the concern about complacency and taking our foot off the accelerator here. Yep. That's a very, very important concern. But I'll also say this, which is Democrats worked very hard and won state houses in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin. So unlike in 2016, where those states were controlled by Republican governors, they had a lot of control over how the vote was tabulated in those states in 2016. Yep. In 2018, Democrats now control those three key states and many other key states around the country. So we've got a little more assurance of fairness that way. The other thing I'd say is this, which is that, uh, you know, we really, we, we've shown, uh, you're, you're absolutely right to flag all these problems, Chris. I don't want to minimize No, them. I hear you. But notwithstanding those problems, Democrats won in Virginia in 2017. We took back the House in 2018. We took over the Wisconsin Supreme Court just this past year, even in the middle of this epidemic with all the craziness going on. So we can show up. We can win elections. We can beat Trump. We can beat Trump's allies. We can take control of the U.S. Senate in 2020. We can obviously take back the White House in 2020. That's in our power. We've done it every year of Trump's presidency. And we need to do it, of course, most importantly, this time. 
is there a state that we're not thinking about or even talking about on the map that you believe Democrats are going to be competitive and might even win in 2020? Well, I don't know about not talking about, but I will say that um, uh, the Texas Democrats are very active yeah. this week on Twitter, uh, trying to uh, rally support for their efforts to turn Texas blue. I've noticed. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've been I've been part of that effort on Twitter and others. Uh, they're asking people 38 electoral votes, they're asking people to donate thirty eight dollars. I put in my thirty eight dollars challenge other people to do that. I think that uh, obviously if we can win Texas. Trump is baked. It's a hard state to win. There's no question. But there's a new poll out this week that shows Joe Biden trailing in Texas by one yeah, point. It's a dead one heat. Point. And Trump's at 42 percent or 43 percent, which is horrible. 43, 44 in Texas. And so, look, I think that uh, obviously we're going to do our knitting in the Biden campaign. We're going to focus on the states that we need to get to 270 and to win. But I think that, uh, you know, there are a lot of states in play this time that maybe people don't expect. Um, we've got a lot of paths to 270, and we're also trying to help Democrats up and down the ballot. You yep. Know, obviously, Joe Biden wants to win. That's the most important thing, taking getting Trump out of the White House. Yep. But he also wants to change this country, and to change this country, we have to win control of the U.S. Senate. That means winning a lot of these key Senate races in all kinds of states, red states, blue states, purple states, all kinds of states. It would be That's great. Uh, you know, having worked for Chuck Schumer in his first term when he yes. acted like the majority leader, now when he would become the majority leader, it would be a great thing for America, if you ask me. It would me. be a great thing. Uh, no Ron, no I'm, I'm pretty much out of time with you. Uh, I just want to uh, make sure I get the plugs in correctly. Where? What's your Twitter handle, Will? Can people find you? Where can people find you? The best place to find me is, is on Twitter. It's at Ronald Klain, R-O-N-A-L-D-K-L-A-I-N. You can find on my takes good or bad right there any big appearances coming up in the next week or two that we should be uh, looking out for uh, ah, he, so. he's on tv look away. he's on tv all the time he's he's a go-to pundit when people want to hear facts and look he's working hard to make sure that we get this tyrant out of the white house and frankly ron god bless you godspeed thank you chris appreciate appreciate the chance to be on all right that's my interview with ron klein sorry for the sharp edits there <laughs> you know piecing together two segments from my radio show to bring you here on the podcast so uh sometimes it's a little choppy but you get the gist uh, i'll be right back all right i hope you enjoyed that uh ron Klain. i mean uh when i interviewed him back in june you know i really was interested in his view on how trump was handling covid19 uh, having, you know, Ron had uh, been heavily involved in the Obama administration's fight of Ebola and of swine flu and other things, learned a lot from it. Trump misquoted him many, many times. You know, this is the thing that really drives me nuts about conservatives. And it's driving me nuts this whole year, you know, particularly when they, when they talk about, well, Dr. Fauci changed his position many times on masking. Yeah, so in the early days... They had one view of the virus, which was brand new, um, had only been studied for a couple of weeks. They also had concerns that hospital workers needed the PPE. And because this president failed to properly prepare us for this kind of crisis, we didn't have enough PPE. And if you talk to doctors around the country right now, there are some places in this country that still don't have enough PPE. And they're mostly in red states, by the way. Uh, because those governors just decided, well, you know, it's not coming here. We're farmers. 
No, it, it, the virus doesn't care if you're a Republican, a conservative, a farmer, a businessman. Uh, if you're a ski instructor at Vail, it, it doesn't matter. It, it's going to find you if it needs to find you. But Dr. Fauci was was learning on the fly and his advice evolved based on new information and on new resources. And when it became very clear that this could be spread airborne like it has been, well, people, you know, people were told to wear masks, create your own mask. And the president, of course, as we've discussed many times on this show, politicized that whole thing. And conservatives like to bring up, well, Fauci wasn't always for masks. Well, he's he's always been for masks since like May. So I, I don't I don't know what else to tell you. Ridiculous, whiny little bitches on the right. And I'm sorry if I, you know, I apologize mostly to my dog, who is a bitch. Uh, for using that negatively because she's the cutest little bitch you've ever seen in your life. Uh, but it, it is it is just annoying as hell to me that these people continue to do this and the president of the United States can end it all by just telling people to listen to the scientists, to get vaccinated, to wear masks, to trust the results of the election. And he knows all three of those things to be true. He knows them to be true. Right. I mean, we know he knows about the virus because we all listen to the Bob Woodward tapes. We know it. We also know it uh, for a variety of other reasons. Right. I mean, he, he has access to this information. And he couldn't possibly believe the nonsense he's spinning about the election. He's doing that to raise money for himself, for his family. He wouldn't be pardoning people left and right if he really thought he was going to stay in office. It's just a big it's a big grift. Done with it. Done with it. Anyway, I, look, I really do appreciate the support you all been giving me. This this podcast continues to grow. You keep telling your friends. Please follow me on Twitter and retweet my stuff if you can, if you agree with it. Um, you know, I've got to grow a Twitter following too. This is the life of the pundit these days. Uh, my my just under 18,000 followers is kind of small for a guy with 2,500 television appearances under his belt. Um, and And God knows how many thousands of hours of radio at this point. I mean, thousands of hours of radio and um, I guess 89 weeks of podcasts. It's really probably like 91 weeks. I've uh, I've done a bunch of, I had a couple of best ofs out there uh, during this time. But uh, I do truly appreciate it. And I hope you all know, you know, this is the last podcast of 2020. And uh, I, for one can't wait to see this year end and and I've had it I know how fortunate I am my life has not been as disrupted as so many people have I've been fortunate my father had the disease but he didn't die from it um nobody else really close to me has been impacted by it um you know I've had a couple friends who got it and didn't even really get sick um you know I I've been very fortunate I can work from home my television studios in my home, uh, my day jobs in my home. Um, I get out to go do radio, but I don't really see too many people. I've been fortunate. I, I live in an area where there's plenty of place, plenty of space for me to go walk and run, do these other things. Uh, I live near a very great hospital, and there are multiple great hospitals on Long Island. Uh, I feel safe. I feel secure. I've got my family here. I've got all the Netflix and Amazon Prime and everything else I could watch to, to, you know, I know how fortunate I am, but I know how many Americans have suffered so greatly this year. 
And I, you know, New Year's Eve has always been a very important day in my life. I, I said this to you last week. I like to reevaluate my life and set goals for the, for the coming year on New Year's Eve. Um, not resolutions. You know, resolution is I want to lose some weight. No, like here's my plan for the year. Here's what I plan on accomplishing this year. Um, I've always been a goal setter since I was in college. It's something I do. I, I encourage everybody to do it. And don't set a million goals. Don't set... Uh, unattainable goals, but have goals, have, you know, things you want to accomplish and then, you know, check in on those goals regularly. Uh, I try to check in on them at least once a week. I used to check in on them every day. I used to tape them to my mirror when I lived alone. They were taped to my mirror and I had five goals for the year. And every day I would look at those goals and I would ask myself where I am in those goals. So New Year's Eve has always been an important part for me. And I know for a lot of Americans who have been struggling this year, it's going to be a very important part, a very important night for them. Uh, Turning the calendar does not necessarily mean things are going to change uh, on January 1, but things start to change on January 20th, you know, 20 days after the new year. And Joe Biden has promised 100 million vaccinations in his first 100 days. Uh, That's great. If we can get to 300 million by the summer, that'll be great. Um, New York Times says I'm 220 millionth in line. <laughs> I don't know if any of you saw that New York Times. Where's your place in the vaccination line? And I did that. I filled in my information. I'm 220 millionth. So I guess June I'll get it. <laughs> maybe July, maybe August. I don't know. I would love to go to Italy uh, next summer or Paris or whatever. I want to travel again. I'm sure you all do too. And, you know, these are all, you know, problems that a, a lot of people wish they had. Um... So uh, I just want to say to everybody out there, first of all, thanks for making this year special for me. A lot of you have contacted me and continue to contact me, and you really make me feel special. And uh, I really love you all for that. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing this podcast and everything else you've done for me. It, it's fantastic. Uh, but just remember, you know, as we move forward into this new year, to believe that things can and will get better and do everything you can to help people who, who, who can't, you know, who don't have it as, as good as you do. Um, and if you, if you're struggling, get help. I know a lot of people have, uh, come down with mental problems, um, through this crisis, whether it's diagnosed or undiagnosed. Uh, a lot of people are struggling. A lot of people, you know, didn't really enjoy this period. And I've talked to a lot of my friends, people I've known over the years, who really struggled through this, both financially and mentally, and their mental health is struggling. And um, I, I know how hard that can be. And I hope that you are all out there, you know, taking care of each other. One of the things that really annoys me about the right wing this year is that it appears that this party, which likes to call themselves the party of Christianity, does not follow Christ's number one rule, his really only rule, the golden rule to love one another, love thy neighbor as thyself, take care of each other. I mean, that's, you know, I, I, again, I am not, I'm not uber religious, but the thing I took away from my youth and growing up, uh, you know, first in the Catholic church and then, you know, as an evangelical, uh, Christ's message was about helping those less fortunate than you loving thy neighbor as thyself and your own selfish behavior of not wanting to do a simple act of putting on a stupid piece of cloth over your face that nobody wants to look at anyway 
drives me crazy how these people can say that they are the party of Christianity when they won't even embrace that simple, selfless act for their neighbors. And they won't even embrace the act in Congress of helping people get by, helping businesses that are now destroyed through no fault of their own. They ask you to support a president who has failed this country. And they say, well, it wasn't his fault that COVID-19 hit. Yeah, well, you know what? It wasn't the diner I like to go to's fault that COVID-19 hit. And they are now out of business. But he's gone in 20 days. As I said at the beginning of the show, I feel his power slipping away. I felt it really, I felt it in a big way this week. Just haven't thought about him. I know he's out playing golf. I wish he'd stay there. I, I just feel the power slipping away. I'm not even paying attention to him anymore. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So uh, happy new year to everybody who listens to this show. Hope you get some time with your family. Hope you get some time to reflect and to set goals and have priorities. Uh, and I want to remind you, as I always do, to seek the truth. Question everyone and everything, even me. Seek the truth. I know it's out there. And I know you'll find it if you look for it. And I'll be back here again next week, next year, to tell you the truth as I see it. I'm Chris Hahn. Thanks for listening to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast.